If you have a Bible, would you grab one and turn with me to Exodus chapter 19? If you don't have a Bible, there's one in front of you. If you don't own a Bible, that Bible that you just grabbed from the pocket in front of you is our gift to you. We'd love you to have the Word of God because we believe that God has spoken to us. And if God has spoken to us, we should listen to what He says. We should understand His words. We should know Him more deeply by studying His Word. And that's why we open it every Sunday together at Calvary. We're in Exodus chapter 19. Exodus is the second book in your Bible. You can also use the table of contents that's at the front of your Bible to find your way there. But the story of Exodus is the historical account of God delivering his people from under the bondage and um, service to Pharaoh and Egypt and out of Egypt into a land of promise that he had promised to the forefathers of the nation of Israel. If you were here with us last week, we began what is kind of a, a two-week look at Exodus chapter 19 and chapter 20, which is the Ten Commandments. And Pastor Tom walked us through uh, a few verses in Exodus chapter 19, verses 4, 5, and 6 that are up here on the screen. Let's read it out loud together. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So last week, Pastor Tom used these verses as our jumping off point to study uh, the Ten Commandments. This week, he's in Erie. Last week, we looked through the first four commands. Today, we're going to look through the final six. But we saw a few important things that we should know before we jump into the Ten Commandments that came out of these verses. Things that we need to know about who God is. Things that we need to know about who his people are. And sort of the terms of the agreement between God and his people. So the first thing that we learned about who God is is in the first verse. It says, God says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. Our God is almighty. He is powerful. He was able to bring his people out of the bondage in which they found themselves in Egypt. So God is almighty. Second, God is gracious. It says, how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. I heard your cries for help. I saw your affliction. I came down and I brought you out as an eagle would carry its eaglets on its wings. I delivered you from Pharaoh's affliction towards promise. So God is almighty, God is gracious, and third we see that God is sovereign, for all the earth is mine. Everything that's in it, God says, I own. It all belongs to me, and that's why I have the power to deliver you. And that's why I can ask you to live life in a certain way, because I am the sovereign God. So that's who God is. God is almighty, God is gracious, and God is sovereign. How about his people? What do we learn about them? First, God says that you shall be my treasured possession. I shall treasure you above all people, he says to the Israelites. I have chosen you, and you are my treasured possession. And second, he says, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. Not a kingdom with priests, but a kingdom of priests. Your purpose in the world is to demonstrate who I am, that I am the gracious, almighty, sovereign God who has delivered you out of bondage. And therefore, for the world, 
for the rest of the nations on the earth, they will look to you as a kingdom of priests. And similarly, you will be a holy nation. You will be set apart and distinct from every nation on earth because you will bear my name. You will be my treasured possession, my kingdom of priests. So that's who God's people are. So what are the terms of the agreement that God is about to set out through his law? He says, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. That's what I'm asking you to do. This is who I am. This is what I have done for you. This is who you are. And this is what I'm asking you to do. To obey my voice and keep my covenant. It's important here as we get to Exodus 19 and 20 that we understand the big picture of what's happening in the book of Exodus. Oftentimes we come to the Ten Commandments and forget the context in which we find ourselves. So much has happened. In fact, 19 chapters of history have occurred leading up to this moment where the nation of Israel finds themselves at the base of Mount Sinai and they receive the law of God from him. And it's important for us to understand what has happened that God has delivered them, that God has redeemed them, that God has rescued them, that God has heard their cry and seen their affliction, and that he has come down. And so what falls on the heels of that is, is this, the giving of the law. God calls his people in the covenant to be obedient. That's what we see in these chapters. In chapter 20 and chapter 21, several chapters, God gives his covenantal law. The Ten, Commandment is, the Ten Commandments are a part of that covenantal law. The law can be thought of in sort of uh, covering three phases of life. The first is the moral life, how we conduct ourselves. That's what the Ten Commandments speaks to. And so there are moral laws that God gives to his people at Sinai. There are also religious laws or ceremonial laws, the ways that they govern themselves in their religious expression. And the third phase of life that the law covers is civil law, how you behave in society, like the statutes that God gives. So here in the big picture, we see that on the heels of deliverance and redemption and rescuing that that comes from God, first, God calls his people to be obedient through the covenant. Now, what comes after the law of God? The instructions for the tabernacle. The tabernacle is the portable tent of worship that will move along with the people of Israel as they journey throughout uh, the wilderness before they come to the promised land. So on the heels of redemption comes God's covenant, where he calls his people to obedience, and the instructions for the tabernacle, where God calls his people to worship. Those are the two right responses for people who have been redeemed, that we would be obedient, that we would obey his voice and keep his covenant and that we would worship him, that we would prize him above all things. One way that we describe worship is that we give all of ourselves for all of God's glory, which is another way that says we would be obedient to what God says, that we would line up under his voice, his covenant, his law that he graciously gives us here. This theme is reinforced at the beginning of chapter 20, right before God gives the Ten Commandments. This is what God says. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Sometimes when we talk about the Ten Commandments, it's like, just get to the list of rules. 
Tell me what I need to do. What does God want me to do? And then I can check it off. And we forget that this is the context in which the law of God is delivered. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And now I give you my covenant. That's the order of things. Salvation first and then the law. I want you to remember when you leave today that that grace from God brings about obedience to God. Grace from God brings about in our hearts and in our lives obedience to God. And remember the order. Every other world religion switches this around and says obedience to God must mean that God would be gracious to me. If I live my life a certain way, certainly God would love me. Certainly God would give me what I wanted. Certainly God would rescue me. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible redeems his people first and then calls them to faithful obedience as an expression of their love for God. Grace from God brings about obedience to God. These are a people that God is giving the law to that are set apart for his purposes, That's who the nation of Israel is, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, a people set apart by God for his purposes. They are to be his representatives on the earth. Other nations are to look to them. They put on display who God is and what he is like. They are like his visual aid for a watching world, that they would see how they live, that they would see how they interact, and they would understand something of who God is. Because the people of God who live according to his covenant, they should live in a way that is consistent with the character of God. See, the law of God is not just some arbitrary list of rules. It's not as if God was sitting in heaven and said, you know, I'd really like to watch people do the following things. That would be entertaining for me. And so I'm going to give them this 10 list of things that they can do, and I'll enjoy that. That's not what the law of God is. The law of God flows from the heart of God. And so every commandment that we see is really a a reflection of who God is. And therefore, if we have been redeemed by him, who we should be too, because of his grace. So last week we looked at the four first commandments. They begin this way. You shall have no other gods before me. Second, you shall not make for yourselves an idol. Third, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. And fourth, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. If we were to summarize these first four commands of the Ten Commandments, we would say that this is the call for us to love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's first. That's our primary duty as we are faithfully obedient to following God in our life, that we love him above all things. So first, we love God. And then if we would summarize the six commands that we're going to look at today, we would summarize them as loving others. Here's what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 13. He says, for the commandments, some of them that we'll look at today, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love God, love others. This is what God calls us to, to love our neighbor as ourself. And so the first of this set of commandments begins at home. God says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12, honor your father and your mother. 
And all the parents in the room said, amen. And you wished that your kids weren't at Sunday school today, but they were here in the room with you, right? Honor your father and mother, God says, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. So the commands to love your neighbor as yourself starts with the family, which underscores the importance of the family. It is the building block of our society under which everything is structured. It's a training ground for children who are born into an existing family. Remember, all of the children of Israel who were born into a family that was a part of this nation were born into the covenant. And therefore, they needed to be trained by their parents about how to live as covenant people. They needed to be reminded of what God had done, what he had accomplished on their behalf, the law that he had given them, the ways that he called them to live and to worship, to govern themselves. And so God says, honor your father and your mother. It's the responsibility of parents to train their children, to help them to grow up. In Deuteronomy 11, God says, you shall teach these commands to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house, when you're walking by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. This word honor that this verse begins with has a really deep meaning in the Hebrew. It's like, it can be translated weight or heaviness or glory. There are other times when this Hebrew word is used to say, give glory to God. This is the way that we defer to our parents, especially when we're young. That we respect them, that we look to them. We view them as an authority figure in our life. And notice that this command does not say, honor your father and mother until you graduate from high school. Honor your father and mother until you have a family of your own. No, it just simply says, honor your father and your mother. Because of the importance for children to care for their parents, especially in ancient times, as they aged, and there were no societal systems that could help them. You know, there wasn't Medicare, there wasn't Social Security, there weren't nursing homes that we could send them to. This was a part of honoring your father and mother, that this was a lifelong commitment to them, that you sensed the weight and the glory of your parents is a good gift from God, and therefore, you honored them. Some of you might know that in the New Testament, uh, Paul says this is the first commandment with a promise. That's because it says here, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, does that necessarily mean that if you perfectly honor your parents, you will live a long life? No. What it does mean, though, is that there is a blessing to honoring your parents. That your life here and now is better and is blessed if you follow this command. And that may mean that you live a long life, but it's not only for your life here and now, but for your life eternally, that it would be long and glorious in the presence of God because you understand that God has commanded you to honor your parents. So how does this command flow from the heart of God? If the law of God flows from his heart, how does this one flow from God's heart? God is relational. God has always existed for all of eternity in a love relationship with his son Jesus, with the Holy Spirit. So it's, it's like an analogy that we probably shouldn't press too far, but it's as if God has always existed in a family, in an unconditional love relationship with other people who he is linked to, forever and ever. And so we see the heart of God reflected in this commandment that God is relational. 
and he commands us to be so too. Now, this, is, uh, this command reminds me of the story when the Sunday school teacher was teaching the Ten Commandments to the kids, and of course, they spent a long time on honor your father and mother. And when they got to the end, the Sunday school teacher asked the kids, are there any questions? And one of the little girls said, well, teacher, this says honor your mommy and daddy, but what about our brothers and sisters? What commandment speaks to how we relate to them? And before the teacher could answer, one of the boys blurted out, you shall not murder. So that brings us to number six. You shall not murder. You know, some of the Ten Commandments are a little bit controversial. We'll see some of those. That some people say that that shouldn't apply to me. No one should tell me to live that way. But I feel like the Sixth Commandment is one that we can all agree on. Right? Every society has built into their systems of government and their law that you shall not murder. Now, in the Hebrew, this is actually just two words, and it's, it's really simple. It says, don't kill. But it has a much deeper meaning than just killing, and that's why we translate it murder. Because the idea here is, is the unlawful taking of another human life. And how does this flow out of the character of God? That God is the life giver. That he has authority over life and death. That he is the one who has imprinted the unique image of God on every human that lives. Which means that every man and woman, regardless of their race, regardless of physical disability, regardless of how strong or not strong they are, regardless of how smart or not smart they are, regardless of anything, every human who has ever been born and will ever be born uniquely bears the image of God because God has imprinted it on our souls. And so human life is meant to be valued above all other life. It has a dignity that's above animals, above plant life, above other created things because God has placed his image on us. And so when the Hebrew says, don't kill, like many of the other commands, the, the Ten Commandments have deep meaning that goes just beyond what you see on the face of it. And so the unlawful killing of another human being could, could extend to negligence, and someone died unlawfully. That you, you didn't mean to kill them, but they did die. It also precludes the idea of lawful killing which we don't have time to get into all of the moral, ethical implications of all of these commandments, but suffice it to say, there are times when it is just to take another human life. And God gives freedom for that to exist in very limited circumstances. But in general, God commands us, you shall not murder. We understand this today, that, that every human being has the image of God imprinted on them, and what does that mean for our society where abortion occurs? If God commands us to not kill, there are implications for us in the way that our society is structured when God commands, you shall not take the life of another. Because God is the life giver. He is the one who holds the ultimate authority over life and death. And to violate his commands about life is an egregious one. Now, on its face, we might look at a command that says, you shall not murder, and think, well, that's a relatively easy one for me to keep, so I can check that off my list. But Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 says, you have heard that it was said of those to, uh, 
to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. What Jesus often does with an Old Testament ethic is he raises the bar so significantly that he says, if you think you can just check the box, I've never murdered anyone, and think you're good, think about what goes on in your heart, the way you think about your brother, the way that hate fills you. You would be liable to judgment as well, Jesus says. You shall not murder. Okay, number seven. You shall not commit adultery. This is one of the more controversial commands. This commandment simply assumes that marriage between a man and a woman exists. And that to violate that would be a violation of God's command. Because marriage is, at its core, a covenant between two people. And God makes a covenant with his people. And marriage is a picture between the covenant that God has made with his people. The New Testament teases this out even more so, to say that it's a picture of Christ and the church. And so marriage is meant to be honored. In fact, in the Old Testament, when God's people violated their covenant with him, God would speak of them as an adulterous people, that they had violated this most significant covenant, and he used this term to refer to them. God always keeps his promise. God is the God of the covenant who is ever faithful to us, no matter how we turn our backs on him. Even in the Old Testament, when the people of God continually turn their back on God, God comes back to them and reaffirms his covenant, reaffirms his love relationship with them because he is gracious. He is faithful to the promise that he has made even when we are not. And once again, we watch how Jesus raises the bar from the Old Testament understanding of you shall not commit adultery to the New Testament one. Also in Matthew chapter 5, he says, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. It's convicting, right? We're just not the kind of people who are used to someone telling us how to live and what to do. We are free Americans. And we perhaps have the most freedom of any society that has ever existed. Not just in the laws that govern us, but even, even in the small things. You know, when I was a kid, if I wanted to watch a television show, I had to wait until the hour of the week when that television program was on. Like, like an animal. Remember, if you wanted to watch Full House, you had to wait until Friday night. You want to watch more than one episode? Sorry, you got to wait till next week. Now, I pull up Netflix, I can watch anything that has ever been made, and there's new content all the time. I'm like the master of my own little television kingdom. I just push the button. There's less constraints on our entertainment than there once was. We used to have to wait for the morning paper or the nighttime news to know what was going on in the world. And there was a constraint that we lived by. We didn't have this constant flow of information of constantly knowing what was happening. And so we were a little more constrained, and now we are less so. Technology allows us to work anywhere in the world. It used to sort of be a job requirement that you lived near your office. Now it doesn't matter. 
I can work for any company anywhere in the world because of technology. If I wanted to buy a, a, if I wanted to listen to a certain song, I would have to go to the record store, go to Sam Goody and buy a CD, hope that they had it in stock, or go search some old school record store to find the song that I wanted to listen to. Now I can just shout out to my digital assistant, right? And Alexa or Siri will play any song that has ever been known by man like that. Like we are masters of our own kingdoms. And when we have that much power and control, even over little things in our life, we don't like it when someone says, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, honor your father and your mother. It's like, wait a second, I'm in control. I'm the one who determines my own destiny. But the reality is, in the picture that we see in Exodus, is that whether we think we have our own little kingdom or not, we all serve something or someone. The people of Israel were enslaved to Pharaoh, and God delivered them, not so that they would be free to do whatever that they would want to do, but so that they would be free to serve God and live under his good and gracious and kind authority. And that's what God calls us to do, to be delivered from our love of self, to be freed from the bondage of sin, not so that we can go do whatever we want, but so that we can live under his good and righteous law, which helps us. Remember what it said in Exodus chapter 19, verse 5, all the earth is mine. God owns everything. So whether we think we do or not, we don't actually rule over our own little kingdoms. There are boundaries in our world. There are things that are ours and not ours. And so God says in the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. There are certain things that are not yours, and you should allow other people to keep those things. And since I own everything, God says, I am the one who determines who has what. I will give you certain things, and I will give you all that you will need. And the people of Israel, on the heels of receiving manna from heaven, water from a rock, should have known that I don't need to steal anything because God has provided everything that I need. I shall not want because the Lord is my shepherd. He will give me everything that I need because he owns it all. And so therefore, there are laws that govern what is mine and what isn't. And this goes beyond just personal, physical property. You shall not steal ideas of other people. This is where plagiarism comes from. This, this was one of the laws that was used to argue against the slave trade. You are stealing a person that does not belong to you. They are a human, fundamentally independent on their own, and you violate so many commands, but this one in particular, when you would enslave a people. You shall not steal, God says. It's also a reminder for us that because God owns everything, we are stewards of what God has given to us. And God calls us to live in a certain way that we would honor him with the way we use our resources because it all belongs to him. Okay, time for a quiz. Does anybody know what one comes next? Which one? Almost. Some of us don't know the Ten Commandments, right? There was a survey that was done comparing how many Americans knew the Ten Commandments versus how many Americans knew the seven ingredients in a Big Mac. Guess which one won? 
Probably because the Big Mac has a song, you know, which some of you could probably sing, I don't know what it is, but the Ten Commandments needs a song so that we would know what comes. The other problem is that there's a lot of uh, things that people think are in the Ten Commandments, but actually aren't, like God helps those who help themselves. (laughs) That's not in the Ten Commandments, nor is that in the Bible, which some people think it is. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Is that in the Ten Commandments? No. Jesus said that. That is in the Bible, but not in the Ten Commandments. God won't give us more than we can handle. This too shall pass. Not in the Bible. God works in mysterious ways. Or what I'm sure every mom and grandma has told their children and grandchildren that is in the Ten Commandments, cleanliness is next to godliness. No. The ninth commandment is, you shall not bear false witness. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, it says. This is the first time that against your neighbor is specifically mentioned. But of course, it's assumed in all the previous commandments. This speaks to judicial and courtroom matters that the nation of Israel would have had and how they would have governed those. Because a society must function based on truth-telling. Just look at the chaos in Washington. This is not a political statement. This is bipartisan. Like, no one tells the truth, and so therefore you have no idea what's going on. And what does it lead to? It just leads to chaos and then disengagement by the public. Because I don't know, what I do know is no one's telling the truth, and so therefore I can believe no one. A society at its core must function around truth-telling. This flows out of the heart of God because God himself is a truth-teller. He always tells the truth. He never lies. What he promises will be accomplished. And if his people are his representatives on the earth, then we too must be truth tellers. Jesus said in Matthew 15, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. These are what defile a person. False witness, Jesus says, come out of the heart. Out of the heart So many of these commands look like external things that we could just obey on the outside. But what Jesus gets to is the root of the issue, that we could disobey the commands of God on the inside. And that's how the Ten Commandments close, with a command that gets to the root of the issue, our hearts. You shall not covet. Now, the verse actually goes on to give some description. It says, you shall not cover your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. This is an exhaustive command. You shall not covet. Covet is an inappropriate desire for something that is not ours. And we should be reminded that God gives us all that we need. And so therefore, there's no need for us to desire something that isn't ours in an an inappropriate way. How many sins actually begin by violating the 10th commandment? Remember David? David was on his rooftop, looked over the house and saw Bathsheba, and he coveted her. Then he took her and he violated her, and then he killed her husband and lied about it. There's so many sins that were committed that began with covetousness. Achan in Joshua chapter 7, after the nation of Israel has had a victorious military battle, God commands them not to take anything that is not ours. And Achan takes just a few small things and hides it. And God knows about it and exposes it. And when he confesses his sin, he says, I saw them, I took them, I stole them. I I saw them, I coveted them, then I took them, then I hid them. 
So it all began with an inappropriate desire for something that was not his. And then he ends up lying and stealing and hiding. So if the law of God flows from the heart of God, then this commandment truly does get at the root of the issue for us. That often we find that our hearts desire things that don't line up with God's desires. And God calls us to live in such a way that we would be the people who say, I want what God wants. Which means that many of us need new desires, new appetites, and ultimately, we need new hearts. Because God looks on the inside of us. Remember what he says in 1 Samuel about David? He says, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Man can see all of these external obedience to these commands, but God can look on the inside and see our motivations, our desires, our hearts. And that's a problem for us if God knows what's going on on the inside. That means that we don't line up with God's commands, and that means that God promises that we should be separated from him. So my friends, if you're here today and you see these commandments of God and say, I don't really mind breaking some of those. Why would God tell me what to do? I want to urge you that, that God is calling you to joyfully line up under his law. To live a life that is reflective of the life that God has called you to live. And if you find yourself here saying, oh man, if God can see the inside of me, my personal motivation, and it just doesn't line up with what he commands, I want to encourage you that there is grace that comes from God. Remember how we started? Grace from God brings about obedience to God. Please don't leave here today and say, oh man, I just need to be better at following the Ten Commandments. Now what God, what God calls you to is, is to receive the free gift of grace that he has offered. That he can step into your life and change your heart. Look at what he says in Jeremiah chapter 31. He says, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is the gift of grace that God offers, that he would write the law of God, his law, his perfect covenant on your heart. How will he do that? Look at what he says in Ezekiel chapter 36. He says, I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the work of God where he steps into our life and remakes us. Where we are born again by the power of the spirit so that we can say, I love the law of God. Not that I I only keep the law of God and therefore God will love me, but that I love the law of God because he has given me a new heart. He has allowed the Holy Spirit to live within me, which causes me to walk in his statutes, to obey his rules. My friends, Jesus did not come simply so that we would behave. Jesus came so that we would believe. And by believing, have life 
in his name. Look at what Jesus said in John chapter 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, Jesus says, you will keep my commandments. This isn't some begrudging obedience to a God who tells you what to do. This is a loving relationship to a God who has saved you, who has sent his son, who says, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. Why? Because if you love me, I will step into your heart and remove a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh. You will be reborn by the gift of my Holy Spirit. You will be a new creature, a new creation in me if you love me. And so that's the call of God. If you find yourself not lining up with the desires of God, I would urge you, love Jesus. Believe in Jesus. Bring your sins to Jesus. All the ways that you haven't lined up to these commands and the others that exist in the New Testament throughout the scriptures, you just bring them to him and say, Lord Jesus, I believe you are my rescuer. I believe you are the one who can rescue me from the bondage I find myself in. I believe you're the one who can deliver me out of the domain of darkness and into your kingdom so I can be set apart for you and for your glory. Let's pray. Jesus, we call on your name now for every unbelieving heart in this room that it may surrender to you in joyful obedience That with the Apostle Paul, it might say, I joyfully concur with the law of God in my inner being. I delight in your law, God, because you have changed me. You have changed my heart of stone to a heart of flesh. We love you, Jesus. We pray that you would help us to follow you. To also be a people who are set apart for your purposes and the places that you have called us to be the ones who declare the goodness of God, who declare the grace of God to people who need it, who shout that God is the Redeemer, that His Son is the Savior. Help us to surrender to You, Lord Jesus. In Your name we pray. Amen.